0: Can we bow our heads and pray? And as we do, um, I invite us to remember our brothers and sisters around the world who are not able to worship in public, um, those for whom uh, calling on the name of Jesus would mean almost certain death, but still they gather in secret and they get the threat of death and they worship. And it's interesting to me that the church is growing exponentially in places like that. And the church here in America seems to be struggling. So I wonder what God might be teaching us from our brothers and sisters who gather in underground places and in secret to worship. I also would invite us to pray for our nation which again finds itself very divided. And ahead of an an important election, I pray that we might be the church, and not just any church, be the church in the way that God has called us to be. And so I invite you also to remember the cares and concerns of your friends and your families as we pray together. Lord God, we thank you that in the midst of a fractured world, we are called together as the people of God. Lord, I pray that we might again and again be reminded of our identity in you. And I pray, God, that you would use your word today to grow and mature us as a church. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters all around the world who are not able to worship freely but who find a way to lift their hands and to dig into your word and to offer up their lives as a sacrifice. May we learn from them what it means to be totally devoted to Jesus. And I pray for our nation that we might be an example of what it is to love deeply, to pursue justice, and not see those things as opposing one another. Father, we love you, and we just want to do your will. So thank you for meeting us in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, sanctuary. My name is Edrin, one of the pastors here, and I am honored to be able to share with you in this way. Um, If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I look forward to getting the chance to do that soon. Uh, We're grateful to be here with you today. Um, I'm going to jump right in because I want to share this word, and then we get to share in communion together as we uh, end our service today. We've been in a series over the last several weeks called Love in Public. Love in Public, Growing in Faith for the Common Good, where we've been asking some questions of what does it mean for our faith to impact the world? And how does our faith call us to walk in the world differently uh, than we otherwise would? And so today we get to talk about the topic of love, love, love. So as we get started, I want to invite you to recall your earliest memory or memories of love. Go back in your mind to some of your earliest memories of love. Perhaps when you think about love, you think about a love song, a song that transports you from where you are right now back to where you were when you first heard it. Maybe some Luther, maybe the Shy Lights, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, whoever it is. For a lot of us, when we think about love, we think about songs. Perhaps for you, when you think about love, a smell comes to mind. Maybe it's the Brute 33 or that old spice that you would generously splash on just before you walked out the house for that important date. Perhaps when you think about love, you think of something totally different. My sisters in the room, when they think about love, they might think about the kind of love that would cause you to pile into a single bathroom stall and come up with a strategy to get your girl out of the club so that that annoying guy will stop following her around. That's love. And if you don't have friends who would do that for you, I want to ask you to reconsider your friend circle. Perhaps when you think about love, you think of something entirely different, something serious like the love that a mother or a father has for a child, the kind of love that is deeper than words can say, and the kind of love that often does not make sense. Today in my family, my two-year-old daughter Harper is celebrating a birthday, and when I think about that little walking bottle of thunder, it often doesn't make sense how much I love that girl, a parent's love often escapes rationale. Friends, love comes in all kinds of shapes and forms. Love seems to be everywhere, but even though we talk about love a lot and hear about love a lot, I would argue that we don't seem to know what it means to really love well in our world today. In this series, Love in Public, we've tried to address this concern in a number of different ways. We've asked ourselves, what does it mean to be faithful people in tangible ways? What does it mean to have our faith in Jesus impact our day-to-day life? And we as a pastoral team have wanted to encourage you as followers of Jesus to wrestle with the call that we have to bear witness to the kingdom of heaven in this fractured world. We've been asking ourselves the question, does our faith really make any difference in this world? So in week one, Pastor Mike encouraged us to be wise people. He reminded us that holy people, those who are growing and becoming who Jesus has called us to be, are wise people. Holy people, growing people, maturing people are wise people. In week two, I tried to encourage us to be joyful people, reminding us that holy people are also joyful people. And that in the midst of a divided world, the world desperately needs the church to be joyful people. In week three, last week, Pastor Rose spoke and encouraged us to be people of good works in a message that broke the Internet. She reminded us that holy people are people who do good works, even when that work looks like disobedience at times. And today, I want to encourage us that as we are striving to be the people of God in public, that we would be loving people. And I want to encourage us and challenge us by saying that holy people are loving people. We're called to be wise. We're we're called to be joyful. We're called to do good works, but we are called to do all those things as loving people. And so I want us to look together at the book of Matthew... The gospel according to Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. The gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to appear on the screen for you. Here's what the Word of God says. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Verse 37 again, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. The book of Matthew comes to us from a tax collector who had changed and become a Jesus follower. The book of Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience with the intent of proving that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Matthew's gospel is the fullest record that we have of the teachings of Jesus. And since the church's earliest days, the book of Matthew has been useful in teaching new Christians about the faith. This section of passages that we're looking at today, this section of Matthew 22, is often referred to as the Lamb's examination. Because in this particular passage of Scripture, or in this area, or part of the book of Matthew, Jesus is preparing himself for his coming death, and he faces a series of trick questions in the midst of preparing to go to Calvary you recall in the Old Testament system of sacrifices that before a lamb could be used for sacrifice, it had to be examined. It had to be looked over. And it was the folks were searching to see if it was without blemish because it needed to be without blemish if it was to be the sacrificial lamb. And I want us to consider this morning that in the same way, in this passage or in this section of Scriptures, Jesus is also being examined in the same way. He is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus faces examination or questioning in order to somehow trip him up. Jesus faces questions from religious leaders who were hoping to prove that he was unfit, that he was fake, that he was a phony, that he was a false teacher, that Jesus was some unlearned babbler who needed to be exposed. So in this section of Matthew, we see the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world, facing examination. I want you to stick a pen in that image for a moment. And I want you to consider the questions that Jesus was being asked. The first question came from a group known as the Herodians, and they asked Jesus about Caesar and taxes. They were hoping to get Jesus to say something that would speak against Caesar. But Jesus told them to look at the face on the coin that they held. And because it has Caesar's face, he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Jesus had not been tricked. He was too wise to be tricked. And so the Sadducees, another group of religious leaders, came and asked Jesus a question about marriage and the resurrection, hoping to confuse him as they had done many others. Jesus said to them, Your assumption that there would even be marriage in the resurrection says something about who you are. Both the Herodians and the Sadducees had hoped to trick Jesus up and prove that he was a fake, but Jesus had left them mind blown. blown. And so Jesus comes to yet another set of questioning. The Pharisees, they come to him as experts in the law, and they say to him in the passage that we just read, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And it was Jesus' response to this particular question that I want us to consider today as we think of what it means to love well in public. And so I want us to, to look again at Matthew 22 in light of this context. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, and hear again the question that is set before Jesus. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. As we talk about love today, you might be asking yourself, Pastor Edren, why of all the passages in the Bible that talk about love, would you choose this one? Why would you not choose something more poetic, something more soft and fuzzy to talk about love. You remember a few moments ago, we talked about the fact that Jesus was the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. And in this section of Scripture, Jesus had to be examined to prove that he was who he said he was. And I believe that just as Jesus The Lamb who came to take away the sins of the world underwent examination in this part of the Scriptures. I believe it's important for us to know that the world is again today looking at the church in the very same way, trying to get a sense of who we are and what we're really about. Brothers and sisters, we are under examination. The world has already some ideas about the church. Some of them say we are very judgmental. Some of them say we are hypocritical. We do not walk what we talk. Some of them say that the church is just a scheme to get money from unknowing old women. Some of them who say that may have never looked at a church financial statement. As the people of God... Our question today is what is our rightful witness in the world? And my hope for us, my prayer for us, my big idea of this message today is that we ought to be people who love even in the midst of a fractured world. If the world wants to know who we are, if the world wants to do some research and examine us to figure out who we are, here's what I want them to take away from looking at our lives day to day, that we are people who love even in the midst of a fractured world. That's who we ought to strive to be. That's who Jesus has called us to be. That's who we are at our best. And when we fail to be people who love in the midst of a fractured world, we give away all that God has given us. So how do we do that? How do we love in the midst of this broken world that we live in? I believe that Jesus' words in Matthew 22 offers us a template of how to love in the midst of a fractured world. In verse 37 of Matthew 22, Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he says this is the first and greatest commandment. Brothers and sisters, if we are to become people who love in the midst of a fractured world, I believe we have to begin by pursuing complete devotion to God. Loving well in a fractured world requires us to put first things first. And as my family in South Carolina would tell you, there is nothing more firster than loving God with everything that we have. Now, that's bad English, but that's good theology. The most firstest thing we can do is to love God with everything that we have. And if you find yourselves today in the midst of this broken world struggling to love your neighbor struggling to love God, struggling to love those who disagree with you, I want to assert today that perhaps it's because your affections have gotten out of order. Gordon Smith, the author of Call to be Saints, writes this about the reordering of our affections. He says, The greatest threat to our capacity to love, whether it's to love God or the other, is our misguided desires longings, and aspirations. Desire is not wrong. Passion is not wrong. Rather, our affections, our deep desire, and longings are misdirected, disoriented, not rooted in the good, the noble, the excellent, and worthy of praise. He says when our affections or our passions are disordered, we are blinded. We are not free, no matter how free we feel. Freedom, including the freedom to love the other, can come only with the ordering of our affections. And so, brothers and sisters, if we are to ever be people who love in the midst of a fractured world, we've got to do the work of reordering our affections. We've got to get to the place of loving God and putting the love of God at the forefront of our lives. But Jesus not only calls us to love God, Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Another way of saying this is Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as our equal. You may ask the question, who is my neighbor? What does it mean to love my neighbor as my equal? There are at least three groups that we should always consider as our neighbor and I believe the Bible informs this, for us, informs this for us. The first is one that we won't talk much about today because it's something we talk about all the time here at Sanctuary. The first group of our neighbors are our brothers and sisters in the faith. Those who, like us, have called on the name of Jesus, who have identified ourselves in Christ, received grace, and now are living as the people of God. When we talk about our neighbor, those who we are called to love, we are always to consider our brothers and sisters in the faith. But we talk about that all the time. We haven't perfected it, but I don't want us to stay there today. I want us to look to the second group. The second group is those who are near us and those who are in need both near and far. I want us to consider today what does love call us to do as it relates to biblical justice? When we think about our responsibilities as it relates to biblical justice, this is not romantic love, nor is this simply friendship love. And I want to encourage those of you who are here at Sanctuary and who are new to the work of reconciliation and justice to not get caught up in seeing friendship as the finish line. Friendship is an important part of the work of reconciliation. But just because you have a friend of a different race or a friend of a different socioeconomic status, that does not mean you have arrived when it comes to biblical justice. When we talk about loving those who are near us and those who are in need both near and far, when we talk about biblical justice, we're talking about living in such a way that the dignity of others is recognized and respected. This kind of love brings us to a place of thoughtfully asking questions like, how are those around me affected by my life, by my actions, by my reactions, and by my choices? It causes us to ask a question like, not what will happen to me if I act in a just way, but what will happen to my neighbor if I don't act in a just way? Loving our neighbors in this sense means being responsible for every aspect of my life, including being responsible for my vote. Friends, I want to suggest here two days before an important election that there is a connection between my actions in an election and the call that I have to care for others. Here's how Gordon Smith said it. He says to love is to actively seek the welfare of the other. We are called to love. Therefore, our way of being in the world is always one of attentiveness to the well-being of all people. And thus, there is a close affinity between love and justice. But and this is very important. Our love is not so not simply for those who are near. It always has universal application. I do not love my family at the expense of others. I do not love my country at the expense of other nations, and I do not love my generation at the expense of generations to follow. I do not accept that my nation will know wealth at the expense of others, nor can I seek the welfare of my nation at the expense of other people. When patriotism is confused with love, it is a distortion of the biblical ideal. Smith says that to love to ask, what does it mean to live with political responsibility towards my neighbor? How can I listen well? How can I serve well? How can I seek reconciliation? How can I see my destiny in light of the well-being of the other? How can the suffering and needs of others shape my life and destiny? To love my neighbor is to be consciously aware of my neighbor, to seek to know and care for what they are doing, suffering, and saying. We are called to love God. We are called to love our brothers and sisters of the faith. We are called to love our neighbors near and far. But this final idea of neighboring is the one that often trips us up. We are also called by Jesus to love our enemies. Jesus was not tripping when he said it. It was not a typo in the translations. Jesus says that we also ought to love our enemies. Matthew 5, 43 says, You have heard it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? He calls us to be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Friends, I don't expect to hear any amens on this section of the message. But I want you to hear me say clearly that if we are to be people who love in the midst of a fractured world, it will be critical for us to love those who we see as our enemies. I'm talking about those whose ideals are different than ours. I'm talking about even those who are active in oppressive systems. That even as we fight for justice and goodwill in the world, we don't have an excuse to hate other people. This is a primary distinction between of what it means to be followers of Jesus and every other group of people seeking to do good in the world. We don't have permission to hate anyone, even as we're trying to fix what's broken in the world. Our justice pursuits must always be rooted in love. Dr. King reminded us that we should never let a man pull us so low as to hate him. We root our pursuits of justice in love because we know that love transforms in a way that nothing else in this world can. Love has a redemptive power that is far greater than anything that hate has to offer us. And even if hate feels right in the moment, and even if people say amen at your hate, it does not equate to God's life for us. You see, hate demonizes the other, while love sees the other as a victim in need of love themselves. Hate suggests that the other side is beyond saving, while the love of God says that redemption is possible even for the worst of sinners. Hate says that I need to build arguments that excuses why I hate the other. But love that comes from God humbles us and said, if it were not for the grace of God, I would be right there with the other side. Friends, hate can be seductive. And when we're trying to do good in this world, I want to encourage us to not take up the ways of the world in trying to change the world. It simply does not make sense. Christ calls us to live in this way. The world needs to see us living in this way. And as you go into this week, even as you go into the voting booth on Tuesday... As you step into your job or into your neighborhood on Wednesday, regardless of what happens on Tuesday, I want to encourage a sanctuary to always be people who love, even in the midst of a fractured world. First Corinthians 13 is a passage that many of us love, and we read it quite a bit at weddings, And when we're trying to date somebody and let them know that we're romantic but also holy at the same time. (laughs) But that passage really is not about romantic love. In fact, it comes to a church that was in deep, deep turmoil. And every sort of evil that you can imagine was happening in the church at Corinth. But in the midst of that mess, Paul calls them back to love. I want to invite you to close your eyes and hear the words that Paul writes to the church at Corinth in the midst of turmoil and confusion and division. Paul, as the prophet and leader that he was, seeks to reset the affections of the people. Here's what he writes If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all of I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully. Even as I am fully known. Now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Lord Jesus, you have called us to love. And when I consider the condition of our world and the condition of our nation, Lord, I don't know if there's anything more important for the world to see from the church than our love. And even as we pursue just causes, and even as we seek to tear down oppressive systems, you call us to be people who love, knowing that love is the greatest force in the universe. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church, help us as brothers and sisters to know what it is to pursue justice in a loving way. Father, thank you that you've loved us so much, that you've called us to a new life in a new way that goes beyond political party, that goes beyond right and wrong that seeks to please you above all god i pray that where we fall short you would cover us in your grace and that we would not hoard your grace for ourselves that we would shower your grace on others as well jesus we love you and we just want to be your people in the world we pray these things In your perfect name, amen. I want to invite Pastor Mike to come forward if he's in here. To give a few words about our communion and to help us transition.
1: yeah Good morning again, Sanctuary. Good to see you. As we transition to communion, uh, just a couple of things in terms of logistics. We're going to take some time to serve our servers, invite them to, to come forward at this time. And as we do so, invite you to reflect on the love of Jesus. That continues to set more and more chairs around the table that creates more and more space um, for those that we love and those that we we don't Uh, those that we need to to do community with and those we need to be transformed And then after we have served the servers, uh, our hospitality team will come to the end of the row. They will invite you to come forward, and as you do so, you will pass by a bucket which will be used for our care and support offering. We love uh, to connect with our community and come alongside those who are experiencing uh, financial distress uh, and be able to support them and help them. transition through those hard places in life. And then uh, you'll ha- be offered communion. Every station is gluten-free, so feel free to to partake in that way. And then as you go back, uh, one of us will be uh, in the wings over there. If you would desire somebody to, to walk alongside you and, and maybe share a time of prayer with you, uh, but that's how we do communion here at the sanctuary. And so come to the table. Pastor Ed
0: Throughout the history of the church, um, one of the ways that the church has been reminded of God's love for us and God's call for us to be loving people is through the sacraments. So whenever we come to the communion table and whenever we participate in baptism, we are reminded to love God when we come to the table.